Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying happy. And I hope that you're staying safe. Now, do you like music, true crime? How about listening to podcasts? A little bit later in the show, we'll meet Jake Brennan, who has combined crime and music in Disgraceland, the number one most downloaded podcast in the world. First up, though, let's meet Karma Brown. She's the best-selling author of five novels, including the number one bestseller, Recipe for a Perfect Wife. Today, we're here to talk about her new book. It's a nonfiction book called The 4% Fix, How One Hour Can Change Your Life. I began by asking her why, as a novelist who had never considered writing a nonfiction book, she chose to do just that. Actually, what changed my mind was my publisher coming to me with a contract and an <laughs> offer <laughs> and the request, like, would you like to write a book about 5 a.m.? and your habit of getting up and mm -hmm. how you've written your novels. And, you know, when a publisher comes to you with money on the table, you, you say yes, and then you figure it out later. Uh, so it was a challenge that I hadn't considered before. And I just thought, well, let's see, let's see what I can do here. So it was, it was great. It was an interesting experience, really different from writing a novel, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I learned a lot uh, about myself and about the process while I was doing it. Well, we'll talk about that in a sec. Let's talk about your 5 a.m. habit here. I've been reading about this, about you. So you get up, you start first thing. And and why does that work for you? Is your head clearer at that hour? What What is it about 5 a.m.? I think mostly it's because it's quiet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have space both in my physical space because people are sleeping but also just in that mental space. I'm not feeling like I need to get back to people on email. I can save some of the other author type work I have for the rest of the day. And it's just this quiet, creative space where no one else has gotten up and I can just settle in to whatever it is I'm working on create, like creatively at that time. So I think it's just, you know, I slept, my, my brain is quiet, it's fresh. Uh, it has just turned out to be this amazing creative time for me. And how did you start doing that? Was it just can't sleep one night, get up really early and you think, oh, this is great. No, it was both more dramatic and <laughs> also uh, a lot longer of a process than that. I had a child who didn't nap, didn't sleep. And so she would get up at three o'clock, 3.30 in the morning for the day. And because you can't leave a baby or a toddler, especially a toddler alone in the morning, I would be up with her and we would be doing crafts and we would be watching Dora the Explorer and doing all these things. And eventually I just thought, well, she's okay. I have her set up with her Play-Doh. We're into this rhythm of this really early morning. And maybe I should see if I can write alongside her. And I just started, it was bumpy. It took a while to get into the rhythm of it. But then once I realized I could sort of tune enough out, keep one ear open as you do when you have children. Right. Uh, and I could just get those words down. And so it has stuck. I mean, it's been 10 years. She sleeps in now and I do not. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you say that the process was different writing this book. Uh, was it that uh, with your novels, do you plan them out? Do you know where they're going to end before you write the first word? Uh, and it feels different with a nonfiction book. You are creating as you go, I would imagine. Yeah, I think with the fiction, I do a lot of planning. I don't always know exactly how it's going to end, but I have a clear view of the world I'm building, the characters, what their main issues are, the beats I have to hit in the story. 
when I'm doing the nonfiction, first of all, so much of it was quite personal because I was mining my own life and my own story uh, for anecdotes. And it was also a lot of going back to my journalism roots to do interviews. Mm -hmm. And so what was so interesting about this book is that I couldn't write it at 5am. So it's the book about 5am that refused to be written (laughs) at 5am. And I fought it for a long time. And then I just thought, no, this is a different book. And my brain needs to be in a different place. And it just, you know, it wanted to world build at 5 Mm a.m. and not go through research studies on sleep or go through my transcript notes from an interview. So, you know, that's how it was so different for me. But once I realized, you know, every book is different, uh, then it was easier for me to settle in to, to a rhythm. Was it difficult for you to write about yourself? I have a hard time in anything that I write using the word I, because I have so often written nonfiction where I'm always writing about other people, uh, movies or whatever it might be, uh, that writing about myself, I don't know what it is, if it feels self-indulgent or whatever it is, I'm not sure, but I have a hard time with it. Yeah, I'm with you, Richard. I felt like it, it felt very self-indulgent to me. And I would say sometimes to my husband after spending a long day of drafting this novel and I would just, or this, this is not even a novel, this nonfiction, I would just say, I am so sick of my own voice right now. And is anyone going to want to hear my voice through the pages? So that was another level of, it wasn't exactly an insecurity for me, but it was just this constant check-in about, you know, it is actually about the reader. It is about imparting some of what has worked for me, but then also allowing people to see how it might work for them. And so it's not really my story as much as my uh, experiences, you know, really filled up those pages. So yeah, I found that part hard. I'm so used to writing about other people, you know, creating characters and worlds. So yeah, that that was an interesting challenge for sure. You're listening to my interview with Karma Brown, author of The 4% Fix, available in fine bookstores everywhere. Now, The 4% Fix is about how to find guilt-free time for the things that you really want to do and why those things that you really want to do matter. Why do you think it is that we sometimes feel guilt when we are doing something that isn't, that's just for pleasure, that, that, that isn't directed at work or will be a productive thing? Well, I think that we are really just crazy for productivity and having things like email and cell phones and this constant connectivity that we have, it just makes you feel like you need to be productive 24 seven. And so then if you have a moment to yourself, well, of course, you should be doing something to tick off another box on your to do list, right. But the point is that you shouldn't be and this whole rush for productivity, and especially during the pandemic, which has been really interesting to see how people have functioned during the pandemic with this idea of having all this time at home, I better make this time really count. But then it becomes much more focused on the the productivity versus the experience of what you're doing. And so, you know, I don't have the answer about how to not feel guilty uh, because I suffer from that too. But then I remind myself that I'm better at what I'm doing and better person all around if I'm also paying attention to the things that uh, feed me in a different way outside of my type A you know, need to be productive because I am type A. And so I like checking off to-do lists. And, um, but, you know, it is a, it's a different way of approaching life. 
And I think that that's a great challenge for all of us to try to sort out how we can do that. I wonder about the pandemic and and how that will affect us because we are working from home now. So many of us are anyway. And uh, you are living where you work and working where you live and there is no shutoff valve anymore. And so for all the people for, you know, that, that you talk to, you see someone at a party, you say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. You know, that's mm-hmm. what, that was the standard answer for many years. And now I wonder about the pandemic and the effect it will have when we are literally living where we work uh, in a way that many of us haven't done before. And I guess we'll know, you know, in a year when it's all over, uh, we can look back and, and see how it affected us. But you work at home. Uh, has the pandemic changed your work habits at all? Yes. And what's so interesting is that I worked at home before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, this this house is my office because I was a work from home mom and then my daughter went to school and I still work from home. So what I'm used to is a very quiet house with just the dog and my own schedule about how I manage my day. And I'm pretty strict about how I manage my work day, which if you work from home, you get good at that. But now everybody else is here with me all the time. My daughter's doing virtual school. My husband is working most of the time from home. And so it is just a constant, you know, there's just constantly people in my space, Mm -hmm. um, which really I found like that has really affected my ability to focus and to focus when I need to be focused. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think we are all still figuring this out because we're really still in the thick of it and how we go back to work and how we go back to finding those windows of time for ourselves. um, You know, because we're, we're in this like forced togetherness where there's also that guilt now about making that time count when, but how do you do that when you're together with your loved ones all the time? It's like too much togetherness, but we can't do anything that feels really memorable at the same time. It's such a strange strange time. Well, new experiences are the thing that you talk about over dinner or a drink or something that you've done during the day. And it, it, it is, there's a lot uh, between my wife and I here, there's a lot just more quiet time mm-hmm. because we're together all the time now. So we don't right. have those exciting little things to talk about. And again, yeah. whether that continues post pandemic or not, if we stay at home and work, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be a while yet. So yeah you know, maybe we'll have the opportunity to hang on to the things that we have appreciated about that, which will be different for everyone, of course. Mm -hmm. And then we can also, you know, I can kick my husband and my daughter out again, uh, back to school and back to (laughs) back to work. And then I can get that just me and Fred, the Labradoodle hanging out uh, with our quiet time (laughs) during the day. So we'll see. Your to-do list, you say you're an A-type, you have a to-do list. I'm assuming that it is just a a continuous thing. If it gets too short, do you feel uncomfortable? Like you don't have enough to do? Like you're not busy enough? I do. I do struggle with that a little. But I have, and I do talk about this in the book. My strategy is to look at these four distinct categories every day. And sometimes I write it down and sometimes I just think about it in in my mind in the morning. But I think about my health, my family, my productivity, and then my creativity is usually the other one. And I pick something that I need to do that day within each of those categories. And it could be something as simple as making sure that we all sit down at the table and have dinner for my family box that I can check off. Uh, The creativity is, is met by either writing in the morning or I tried to learn the ukulele, which didn't go very well one morning. So, you know, I look at, 
I look at my to-do list more in those categories because those are my priorities. Those are the things that matter most to me. And so if I can check off something in each of those categories, like just those four things Mm -hmm. every day, then I feel like I have done the things I need to do on that day. So I don't necessarily, you know, I think I I probably do have a running to-do list and I like it to be significant enough that there isn't two items on there, but I do try to focus my attention more on those priorities for for myself because it's a much more satisfying way to approach a to-do list. And the priorities will be different for everyone. I mean, essentially they could be the same, but everyone will have their own list. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't matter what those categories are. The point is to to set them up, to not really do more than four, uh, and then to make sure that you're thinking about what fits in there that really lines up with your values, with your priorities for each day. And then you just turn the page and the next day is a new day. When you were writing the 4% fix, what did you learn that was perhaps unexpected for you? I think one of the things I learned was around habits. So I had always believed that it took 21 days to build a habit. And there's actually some new new research that suggests, no, this whole 21 days to make a habit is not, you know, you don't need 21 days. Uh, What you need is consistency. And just also that, you know, consistency around your sleep, around your habits, around your goals. I learned some interesting things about that, that it doesn't have to be quite as strict. Uh, You don't have to be so demanding on your time. And the key is to try to be consistent and to do as much as you can, you know, day in, day out. If it can't be every day, then try to do it a few times a week. So that was, uh, that was interesting for me to, to read about that. And also some of the, Uh, Some of the research on sleep, I didn't know a lot about sleep. I'm not an expert, of course, still. I mean, even when you write a book and then you put, you put, (laughs) you put these research studies and you put these facts in there and you're still not an expert. You're just as a journalist, really unloading those, those facts and details into your story. But it was interesting to, to learn about sleep, how we used to sleep. Um, in this biphasic pattern where we would sleep for five or six hours, get up for a couple of hours and read and play music and spend time with our family and then sleep for another five hours or so. Uh, so yeah, I, there were a lot of just little aha moments for me that were interesting in doing that. So it felt like one long journalistic article where I was getting to dive into some interesting things I was curious about. You're listening to my interview with Karma Brown, author of The 4% Fix. Was the process of writing uh, the 4% fix uh, one that was different enough that it encourages you to write other uh, nonfiction work or, or will there be a, uh, you know, a novel, nonfiction novel uh, uh, progress for you in the future or how will that work? I have no idea. I mean, I have learned to never say never because I really truly said I would never write a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. And then I, here I am with a nonfiction book. So the never say never thing is, is really my answer to that. I did do, I mean, I was a magazine journalist prior to becoming a novelist. And so in some ways this felt familiar, just a much longer, uh, more in-depth process. It was sort of like writing you know, 50 articles on the same topic all had to be on theme, but also all had to be quite different. So it did, it did have that familiarity for me. And I do really enjoy writing nonfiction. Uh, But my love is fiction. So it's just hard to say, I think it would have to be the right project. That's, that's probably the best answer. And the format of the book is uh, very easy to take in. I'm sure that must be something that 
you have to give a great deal of, of thought to beforehand when you're putting a book together that is a self-help book. You want it to be attractive to the reader. You want the reader to be able to actually g- maximize their, their use of the book. So a part of that is just the way that you lay out the information. How did you do it for this book? Well, I knew from the beginning, I had many conversations with my editor where we went back and forth about what this book needed to be, what it needed to really be about, because you can't write a whole book about just getting up at 5am. It's very short. You know, you set your alarm, you put your feet on the floor, you get up and off you go. So there was a lot of discussion around what, how we wanted it to land. And I, I always said that I wanted to be a little bit bossy, but also quite encouraging. And that was the voice that I was going for through the book. And hopefully that is the one that I think I have achieved. That's sort of my, my own persona. People who have read it, who know me personally are like, I feel like you were right there in my ear, you know, telling me to do these things and set my alarm. And so, you know, that's how I approached it. I wanted to be open and to introduce some ideas, but also not be uh, so strict about it because I find that a number of books that, fall into this genre with time management, you know, their spreadsheets, it's very, it's very strict and and not complicated, but you have to follow a certain process, which, you know, every, it's so different for everyone. What works for one person won't work for someone else. So, you know, we, I think that we just tried to, to find that balance, that sweet spot between being slightly bossy and being somewhat encouraging. (laughs) Well, I don't think you want to read and feel like you're being scolded for your no. life choices when you pick up a book like this. No, and I mean, people who are reading this book are all adults. And I say mm-hmm. this at the beginning, like as an adult, you have earned the right to be able to make your own choices and do the things that you would like to do, at least that the things that are within your control. Mm-hmm. So if this works for you, fantastic. If you wanna fight it, go for it. And if you're willing to maybe give it a try, amazing, you know? That was Karma Brown. Find her book, The 4% Fix, wherever you buy fine books. Disgraceland is a podcast about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Each episode traces the wildest criminal stories surrounding our most interesting and infamous pop stars. It melds music history, true crime, and transgressive fiction, and it is hosted by Jake Brennan, who joins me today. Why do you think it is that the the mix of true crime and music has struck such a chord with people? Um, I don't know. It's kind of this peanut butter and chocolate thing. I think part of it has to do, <laughs> part of it has to do with, um, you know, people don't necessarily think about the music industry who aren't associated or in or big fans of music as being this sort of hotbed for, for criminal activity, but it certainly is. And, and there's lots of it to go around. And it's, I think it's safe to say that most people just don't, don't have any idea what some of these artists have gotten up to in the past in terms of criminal antics or have had perpetrated upon them as well. So there's a lot of true crime within the history of music and it continues to this day in all genres. Well, the germ of Disgraceland came from uh, you rereading Please Kill Me, one of the legendary oral histories of the punk rock scene in uh, New York City. And you say you realize that all your heroes were animals. What was it about rereading that book and the lifestyle uh, that really uh, put you on this path? Well, that book does have a a particular uh, type of rock and roll animal that's pretty extreme. 
but I'd read books like that my whole life. I mm -hmm. think the thing that it was for me was the timing. I had just had my first son. I was, I had just hit 40 years old. I was sort of, you know, my, my perspective on things had changed a little bit. And I started thinking about like, God, right. Would I ever even just leave my kid in the same room with Lou Reed? And <laughs> after reading, please kill me. Uh, you know, I had that thought. And of course the answer is hell no, man. Um, and then it just started, it just opened up the floodgates. And I started thinking about all the behavior of all these rock stars, some of which, most of which are incredibly mainstream or have been mainstreamed over the years and have become sort of beloved. You know, we don't, we don't think of the, the things that they actually got up to in the past, you know, I mean, who is more, who is more beloved than Paul McCartney, but, you know, people don't realize that he spent, you know, 10 days in a Japanese prison, not a jail, a prison with like Yakuza, like hardcore criminals, you yeah. know? Um, so that a lot of that stuff has sort of been forgotten about. And, and I thought, wow, maybe I can bring light to that in a way that's entertaining and dramatic. We'll get to some of the stories in just a second. We'll get some Cole's notes on them, but, uh, what do you think it is about this lifestyle that can encourage bad behavior? Is it that people just don't say no to you after a certain point when you reach a certain level of fame? Or is there something more to it? I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, Phil Spector, who just passed away, is a, is a perfect example of, of two things, like what you just said, like having you know, never, never being told, no, it, it does a lot for your ego, you know, and, and that guy had a massive ego, but he also had, I think, massive abandonment issues due to the fact that his father had killed himself when he was very young. And I think in a lot of cases, these artists, they have these, this is not to excuse their behavior at all, but it's just the fact they come from highly traumatic circumstances in their early lives and their childhoods. And that has an effect on who you are and how you see the world and how you behave. And you throw that into the world of the music industry, particularly in the 60s and 70s when the industry was a hell of a lot more lawless than it is now. And you get this just this mix of, of, of criminality that happens. You're listening to my interview with Jake Brennan, host of the podcast Disgraceland. So you call this this milieu the, the the music business the devil's workshop how do you think that some people uh, avoid the pitfalls like bruce springsteen who seems to have really uh skated around scandal and criminality uh for almost 50 years in a public eye again i think it's a mix of things you know there's this interesting thing jerry garcia said about about pig pen uh, ron mckernan who was the harmonica player and keyboard player uh originally for the Grateful Dead who died very young and you know Jerry said of him that uh, he didn't Pigpen didn't have the intellectual capacity to sort of um, see his way through and you know he's referring that he doesn't mean that in sort of a demeaning way he meant it in you know he didn't he, he wasn't a type of guy who was particularly educated or who, who read books or yeah. who had a different perspective. I mean, education and reading and not, you know, not to sound too academic about it or, or, you know, put too, too deep of a, of a shine on it, but it's, that stuff matters. And when you, when you, when you have perspective on other people's lives because of the things you've learned, the things you've studied or the things you've read in books, it gives you a different type of perspective on your life. And I think Bruce Springsteen, um, is incredibly tuned into all of that, and it helped him avoid some of the, the pitfalls that happened to others. So when we're listening to Disgraceland, 
and hearing stories about some of our favorite artists uh, that perhaps we didn't know about. They've dipped their toe into some kind of criminality. Um, where is the line for you about judging the art uh, and not the artist? You can still love a song, even though it was a Phil Spector song, for instance, who was a convicted murderer. Um, how do you feel about that? Where do you sit on that side? It's very easy for me to compartmentalize them, uh, the two things. Humans are great at compartmentalization, or at least they used to be. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's, I think art, you know, is, you know, there's an objective side of art. It's not all subjective. There is this, uh, there is a, a way to look at art as just being what it is. Like when, you know, when Phil Spector produced Be My Baby, he wasn't thinking about killing Lana Clarkson. The two things are two entirely separated. And it doesn't mean we have to ignore one or the other. It just, you know, now there's also a visceral component to that as well. You know, when all those allegations about Ryan Adams came out, it was hard for me to listen to Ryan Adams for, you know, a while. I mean, I still really haven't, you know, I'm not really interested in what he's doing. Now that might fade, but it's also because it's fresh in my memory. You know, mm -hmm. I can't really listen to Michael Jackson without thinking about the allegations around Michael Jackson, but it doesn't stop me from realizing and knowing just how incredibly talented that guy was and it doesn't make off the wall any less of a great record um so i don't know that's me but you know it's you know then there's also the subjective side of it people deal with this thing these things differently and these things uh affect the way that they hear and appreciate uh music and you know it's to each his own how do you choose the artists that you choose to profile on disgraceland there are juicy stories that either sometimes I imagine you start doing research and you go, mm, not as juicy as I thought it was, or maybe it's a little juicier and you have to uh, consider legal repercussions if you tell a story on, on the podcast uh, that a band or an artist doesn't want told. They're almost all juicier than I think they're going to be before <laughs> I get into the research. And again, it's just because these artists live highly dramatic lives and there's something about, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not telling stories that haven't been told before. That's the thing. I mean, these stories are already out there. They're well documented. And in almost all the cases in the autobiographies of these artists, I just got done reading Ray Charles's autobiography and it's like, oh, my God, this is what you're admitting to. Like and and we we accept it. We, it it's baked into the cake, you know, and, and how I choose the artists is, you know, it's a mix of. Um, you know, I try to go for balance in genre because I'm interested in multiple uh, genres and artists from different genres. And I'm, I'm trying also mainly more than anything to find uh, a story that I can tell in a different way. Like I'm not interested in telling the Ray Charles story that was already told in the biopic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, does not appeal to me one bit. Why? It's already been done. It's done great. What am I going to do with it in a podcast? That said, a podcast has a certain... Uh, as a medium, it has it has a there's a different way and has a different effect that these stories have on the listener. So again, I mean, I'm trying to find a hook, just like in a good song, I'm looking for a good hook for the story. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the boldface names that you profile on the show. Rick James has an incredible story that if it wasn't true and it was in a movie, you wouldn't believe that it could possibly have happened in real life. Yeah, Rick James, that was one of the ones I was really shocked at just the, the sheer lever, level of, of criminality involved in the guy's life, even beyond the sort of um, 
you know, abduction of the woman and the smoking of the crack that, you know, we, that we know of, but prior to that, I mean, you know, running, ju- running drugs out of Colombia <laughs> for the cartel, <laughs> and, I didn't... for the cartel. I mean, it's just like, you know, dealing, dealing, dealing drugs as a child with his mom to like jazz legends. It's just, it's just endless fodder for, for great storytelling. Um, Rick was a special guy, man. I, I'm surprised. I'm survived. I'm surprised he survived as long as he did. I'm uh, speaking to you from Toronto, and he spent time here, uh, and he was in a band called the Minor Birds with Neil Young, and they used to play at a place that's just around the corner from us, uh, from where I'm sitting, that had a buffet on Sundays where the band would play, I guess, as background music, but uh, it was a hippie place, and they featured a nude chef that would carve the roast beef. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, man. That's, I know, uh, I know. It's, Just it's one of those. So many different levels. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, some other names here. Let's talk about Frank Sinatra. Yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. Um, I think if there was ever a musician that I could, a, a dead musician who I could sit down and, and have a drink with, it would be Frank Sinatra, just because he was connected to so much um, historically. And, you know, Frank had a role to play in in the life of Jack Kennedy. And it was, you know, that's the, the crime of the century, the killing of the American president, John F. Kennedy in 1963. And, and you know, I think it's, um, it's fact, it's not myth that, you know, Frank was involved. And there were certain things that he put into action for the Kennedy family that and for the mafia that, that went uh, awry and had disastrous results. And Sinatra never really, never really forgave himself for it. And that to me, you know, I loved writing that episode because it, it gave me sort of like a, a creative freedom to get to get into James Elroy's head. And Elroy is one of my favorite authors. And he's, he spent so much time in that world. Um, and it, it allowed me to play around with that. So that was a lot of fun. You're listening to my interview with Jake Brennan, host of the podcast Disgraceland. You've also talked about Amy Winehouse. And I was a fan of hers while she was alive. and a couple of years ago, saw a documentary about her life that I just found absolutely shocking because when you first meet her, she's 17 or 18 years old. Um, she looks healthy. She's voluptuous. She's playing guitar and singing. There's just so much joy and and spirit in her. And then the last time that you see her in the film was her last appearance on stage. And she's staggering around the, the stage, lost, doesn't know, really seem to know where she is. She looks like she weighs about 90 pounds. Uh, it is just absolutely crushing. And uh, hers is a fascinating story, but I think it's probably fascinating because it's a real cautionary tale. It really is. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, I, I think I saw her first U.S. performance mm. um, that wasn't on television. I mean, she came over to America. She did the Letterman show. I think she might've, on another night show or something and then she went to south by southwest and i actually saw her twice down there and um, at that point you know she wasn't nearly as off the rails as she would become I mean, she was still off the rails i think i actually went to a third show and she didn't show up but you know that happens in south by southwest <laughs> um so uh, yeah i mean a cautionary tale i think i think that one it was just she was ill-prepared 
it's so cliche, but she was ill prepared to deal with the fame for many reasons. And it, it ate her up and she couldn't get a hold of her addictions and her addictive personality. And just a really, really sad, sad story. I think that's a common theme. I think people think that once you get famous and you have money and you're riding around in the back of limousines and things, things will be great. But it also turns your world upside down in a way that I don't think uh, most people would be prepared for. And as we see over and over again, is very difficult to deal with. And the stories that you profile in Disgraceland, I think often uh, are the result of fame gone wrong, fame uh, that pushes people in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think I think riding the sort of snake of fame is is difficult for anyone, no matter how well established they are um, emotionally, or no matter how much support they might have from their team. I think you know it's hard for people to. I spend a lot of time reading about this, so I, I kind mm -hmm. of I feel like I know about it a little bit. It's the circumstances that fame presents you are can often be as problematic as the circumstances that regular regular people feel just they're different and they're and they're oftentimes even way more intense and like like we started off in this conversation it's talking about it's if, you, if you're not if you're not well grounded and you don't sort of have all your stuff in one bag it's going to be it's going to be tough to handle why do you think that true crime has become such a huge trend in the last number of years that's a really good question. I've talked about this a lot. I've been asked about it a lot. I have friends that, you know, have true crime podcasts um, and we've talked about it. It's, it's, um, I don't know. I think there's something about the vulnerability that it presents mm -hmm. and with most traditional true crime podcasts, it's the vulnerability of the victim. Um, and that's certainly representative in, in my shows and Disgraceland and in the Phil, Phil Spector story, Blood on the Tracks, but it's also uh, it's also the vulnerability of in my in in our, you know the case of Disgraceland, the the artists and what they're what they're put through and how they come out the ringer behaving in these horrible ways. And again, that's not to make excuses. I'm not making excuses at all, but there is a cause to the effects. You mentioned Phil Spector uh, again. We spoke about him uh, briefly earlier. But he was put in jail before, I mean, there was social media then, but he spent the bulk of his life kind of running rampant through West Hollywood with no repercussions because uh, people didn't have cell phones and weren't taking pictures of him when he'd go into Dan Tana's and go on a drunken uh, tear <laughs> through, uh, through the place. Um, do you think that these stories that we hear today are um, different because of social media. Robert Pattinson told me one time that when he first moved to Hollywood, it was before everyone had a cell phone and he would walk into a club and there'd be like a 14 year old star of some sitcom snorting cocaine, sitting at a, a, a table full of, of uh, you know, shady people. He said, that doesn't happen now. Everyone just does it at home because of social media, because of cell phones. Has it changed the rock and roll world as well? Oh yeah, of course, hundred uh, um, percent. First of all, I'd just like to say uh, I'd give a finger to hang out at Dantana's and watch Phil Spector come into a room with a fourteen-year-old sitting at a table snorting cocaine in between bowls of pasta and cheap red wine. But I think Pattinson is completely right. Um, I think it's totally changed the landscape of what you can and can't do. It hasn't really curtailed the behavior, I don't think. 
I think the stuff we don't hear about is beyond imagination. And it's always been that way. But for Phil Spector in particular, you got to also remember, like he was, he hit early, early, early in the music, in the rock and roll version of the music industry in 19, in the early 60s with the girl groups. And he was, you know, I don't think people understand now who don't study music or know Phil Spector, how incredibly impactful and famous and successful that guy was. And he might not have had the fame of some of his artists, but, uh, you know, a song like a single, like Be My Baby, I mean, the Ronettes toured Europe and the Rolling Stones opened for them. And the Beatles like glommed onto the tour because they just wanted to hang out and be around them. And he kind of just ran roughshod over the music industry in the beginning because he could, and he never stopped that, even though in the seventies, his career started to decline, his behavior got even worse and it became more obvious. And I was thinking about this today. I don't, I don't think Phil Spector, I could be wrong. Please. If anyone listening to this uh, knew him uh, or knows better, let, let us know, but I don't think he had a single consequential relationship with anyone after like you know 1975 with anyone that he didn't have on the payroll i mean he just burned through everyone and and i just think the hubris was such that he was afforded the luxury to kind of behave that way early on because he was so successful and because the world like you said due to the internet being what it was were non-existent at that point Mm -hmm. obviously but media wasn't even what it was I mean, the United States wasn't even anywhere near as big as it is now, just population wise, less people to upset. (laughs) And it just allowed him this ability to behave like a complete animal and to always get his way and to always think he was right. And it lasted way too long. And the results were, of course, totally tragic. I sure enjoyed talking with Jake Brennan, the host of Disgraceland, the number one most downloaded music podcast in the world. Who knew Rick James ran drugs for the cartels? If you like that kind of stuff, Disgraceland is absolutely the podcast for you. Uh, There's stuff there that will curl your hair. And Jake is a great host. I also want to thank my other guest today, Karma Brown. She is the author of The 4% Fix. It's available wherever you buy fine books, and it will teach you how to just free up some time in your day to do the stuff that you want to do. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want? My biggest thanks, of course, though, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.